This morning we have the good opportunity of reading from the Word of God, from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 8. And in honor of our Lord Jesus Christ, would you stand with me for the reading of the Gospel? The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we are grateful for moments of hearing your word and of spending time in it. The word that you have preserved in order that we could have a glimpse of who you are, Father. And that you've given us this revelation of yourself. And now we pray, Father, that you would teach us from it. Lord, by the power of your spirit, enable us to comprehend and understand to a greater degree the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. A few years ago, my wife and I were driving from Rhode Island to Chicago, and uh, it was a drive we'd made many times, and we were in our um, 2000 Chevy Silverado pickup truck. And you get on I-95 in Rhode Island, and that takes you through Connecticut and and then into New York City. And as you approach the city, you pass through a little suburb called uh, New Rochelle, and then you drive through the Bronx, and then eventually you cross the Alexander-Hamilton Bridge onto Long Island. Now, I-95 is a very busy interstate uh, as you're in that whole New York City area. And since it comes right through the city, it's also a bit more narrow than in other parts of it. And there are a few areas along the interstate where it's very difficult to pull over. You can see where I'm going with this. And so as we're moving along, we suddenly hear this gagunk type sound. And we look at each other, and it sounds like there is this dragging noise now underneath our vehicle, like something is caught underneath the truck. And, and I'm thinking perhaps, you know, maybe I hit a cardboard box or, or some other minor piece of debris under the vehicle, and, and I just didn't see it, you know, there's a lot of trucks around. And I look over at Jennifer, and we're both hearing this dragging noise and wondering what it is and if it's going to release soon, maybe when we hit another bump or or something, another pothole. And since there aren't very many places to pull over to begin with and we're right in the middle of the Bronx, it just doesn't seem like that great of an idea to pull over. I'm from the Chicago area, and in Chicago everyone knows you don't go on a sightseeing tour in the late afternoon on the south side. And my impression of the Bronx is kind of the same thing. If you can avoid it, it's probably a good idea to stay out of there. 
Now, I don't think we had driven very far, but it might have been a, a mile or so, and we're dragging this, and the noise isn't lessening at all, and so we really need to pull over. And the only place I could find was uh, kind of on the side of an exit ramp, and I figured that I could just pull over enough, and I'd be able to get out safely and remove this debris and then get right back in the truck and, and right back on our way as quickly as possible. So I get out quickly and I look under the truck and then I pop right back up and I get right back in the truck. And I shut the door and I, I turn to Jennifer and I say, we have a small problem. That dragging noise that we've been hearing is a little bit more serious than we might have thought. As it turned out, we were dragging down the highway at 50, 60 miles an hour the truck's gas tank. And the initial gagunk we heard was the straps that hold the gas tank breaking and the gas tank hitting the pavement underneath the truck. And so now the only connection point for the gas tank is the fill tube, which is being stretched down as the tank sits on the ground. Now bear in mind, the truck is still running. And gas isn't leaking anywhere at this moment. But when I looked under the truck, you could see that we were quickly wearing down the bottom of the gas tank, which is made of plastic, as we've been dragging it for a mile or so down the highway. And I think we sat there a few minutes at this point, taking in kind of the bizarre nature of the situation, before we started to try and figure out what we were going to actually do next. What we knew we were not going to do was drive any further because of the potential of fire and explosion. It just didn't seem right to drag your gas tank down the highway. So there we are, trapped on the side of the expressway in the Bronx, and nighttime is quickly approaching. We're not going to get out of this situation under our own power, as it were. We weren't about to try and get out and walk into the Bronx, no, this would uh, need some type of outside rescue for us, right? We're going to need a tow truck, and we're going to need a service station, and we're probably going to need a hotel. And let's face it, we need some type of divine rescue intervention here. And I'll tell you, in those moments, you feel absolutely helpless. We needed God operating on our behalf. We needed a divine deliverance. Now, the idea of God coming to rescue you and the need for a total deliverance is what we're going to read about in Mark chapter 1 this morning in the few verses we're looking at. That's really what Mark states in the opening verses of his gospel. And I want to show you this morning the magnitude of the rescue operation that Mark is telling us about as we unfold these few verses. Now, the letter of Mark is one of the four gospel accounts, if you will, the four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus in the Bible. It's the shortest historical account and probably the earliest written. Mark is known to be sort of the ghostwriter for Peter, the disciple of Jesus, and thus the first-hand information that we read about would then really be from the perspective of Peter. Now, like all letters that you read from someone or receive from someone, there's an expectation that the writer and his audience share something in common, right? That his audience must know some things to receive a letter from the author. They must share some common understanding of words and their meanings. 
when you send an email to someone, the assumption is they're going to understand you because you share some common understanding. Maybe you work together. Maybe they're a friend. Perhaps you have some common connection or some history together. And when you reference something in common that's from the past, they know what you're talking about. So let me read again the first verse or two here of of Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Mark, the writer, assumes several very big things in these opening verses. He assumes you already know what the word gospel means. And he wants you to apply your understanding of the word to this person Jesus now. He calls him Jesus Christ. And so Mark assumes that you know that the Christ is the Old Testament word for the anointed one or or for the Messiah of God. And he assumes that you know who the Messiah figure is in the Old Testament. He also presupposes here that Jesus is the Son of God, something that he then will proceed to carefully convince the reader of throughout the rest of the gospel very subtly. And lastly, he also assumes that you know the prophecy of Isaiah really well. Because according to Mark, the starting point for Jesus and understanding the gospel and his role as the Messiah is found in the pages of Isaiah the prophet, which he then proceeds to quote in verses 2 and 3. So, I mean, Mark is saying here, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus is written in Isaiah. That's the gist of the expression, as it is written, or just as it is written. So it's fair to say we would be really hard-pressed to understand Mark's writing about Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God, if we didn't have at least some understanding about Isaiah's prophetic words in the Old Testament originally. And we also learn here that you need to understand the concept of the gospel in the Old Testament and then apply that concept to Jesus. I mean, too many of us probably think that the, uh, the gospel is a word that pertains to Jesus and not a concept that was in existence for over a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. The, the concept of gospel doesn't begin with Jesus, but today the word is synonymous with his life and ministry. See, Mark is saying right from the beginning here that Jesus makes sense if you see the bigger plan of God, the rescue plan of God. And he assumes that you know an awful lot before you read his book. I mean, volume one is Isaiah to Mark, and he's writing volume two. Mark states that the beginning of the gospel is really found in the pages of Isaiah. And he assumes that you know that. And then he just quotes, really, one verse from Isaiah chapter 40 there. And like most Old Testament quotations by New Testament writers, when they quote a verse, it's applying the understanding not just of the verse, but of the whole passage, of the whole section from Isaiah. And really, there's some wording that's also here from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And Mark assumes that you know that. So Mark's quotation from the prophetic voice, which is predominantly Isaiah, is where we actually gain the understanding of the gospel. There's a lot of things going on. So we need to take a few moments now in Isaiah so we can understand Mark and how he's communicating Jesus to us in the opening verses of his book. Well, if you know a little bit about Isaiah, let me tell you a little bit more. He's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. 
It's the most quoted prophetic book in the entirety of the New Testament. As a matter of fact, if you take all the other quotations of all the other prophetic books, they don't equal up to the number of quotations from Isaiah in the New Testament. It's quoted in 20 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Isaiah was a prophet, sometimes referred to as the prophet's prophet, and his ministry was in southern Israel between about 760 and 700 B.C., so about 700 years before Jesus. Now, if you've ever read Jonah in the Old Testament, you'll find that he's a bitter little man. And he's a bitter little man because he's not Isaiah. Isaiah is the downtown Jerusalem prophet to the king, prophet to the stars. The Really, the who's who lives in Jerusalem, and Isaiah gets to prophesy to them the word of God. And in chapter 40 of Isaiah that Mark quotes from, that is the turning point chapter in the entire book of Isaiah. Because the first 39 chapters in Isaiah have been nothing but really bad news from God. That God is angry and that the people have been ignoring him. And they have for quite some time. And God accuses the people through Isaiah of having been living, you know, just outward religious lives. With no heart change at all. No inner transformation. Hey, they're good people. There's no arguing about that. They're good people. They're moral people in their actions. There's just what's referred to as a religiosity among the people in Isaiah's day. It's all show on the outside, but the hearts are really corrupt. And for really just about 39 chapters, Isaiah has been delivering the bad news of God's judgment against them. And part of the prophecy is Isaiah telling the people that Israel was going to be destroyed and the people were going to be taken into captivity. And they were. In 702 B.C., the Assyrians to the north of Israel came down and crushed the northern kingdom of Israel. And then in 587, the Babylonians came from the east and crushed and took the inhabitants of the southern kingdom of Israel. That's the rest of Israel, and that's where Jerusalem is located. And they completely destroyed Jerusalem, including the great temple that Solomon built. And the people were then taken into captivity in Babylon, where they remained for about 50 years. No possibility of parole or returning to their homeland. They were captive to King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, being kept 500 miles away as the crow flies from their homeland. And a trip back to Israel was really a thousand-mile journey on foot through some of the most rugged terrain on the known earth at the time. And it's the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40 and following that is the only hope for these people. The only hope, because in chapter 40, we find the promise of a rescue that's going to happen. And so the words of Isaiah 40 and following in Isaiah is what the people clung to as God's divine promise of deliverance from their prisoner of war status. Let me read some of the beginning of Isaiah 40 for you. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. 
The Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Now in verse 9 of chapter 40 there, that's the first use of the word gospel in the entire book of Isaiah. And it's only going to occur a few more times after chapter 40. Verse 9 says, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. It's a message that God's going to come. And, and here, this is the good news, which is the same word we translate gospel in the New Testament. It's the message of God coming to bring about a divine deliverance of his people in some way. And actually, the the word for good news, the word for gospel here in the Old Testament is used some 30 times, and it carries that same meaning. It belongs in that same camp there throughout all its occurrences. Gospel is God acting to bring about a rescue of his people, specifically here in Isaiah, when his people cannot rescue themselves. God's going to make the terrain passable. He's going to bring his, his captive, imprisoned people back from total destruction and return them to the very land of Israel. He's going to finally bring them home, we read, which is exactly what does happen. In 537 BC, the Babylonians are soundly defeated by the Persians and the new king, King Cyrus, he has a major God moment and he wanted to send then the captive Israelites back to Israel. But he just doesn't let the prisoners of war go. He not only releases them, but he equips them for their thousand-mile journey. And he also provides the resources for them to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And that's the divine rescue that gospel is describing in the Old Testament. And that's what the message of the gospel is. And this is particularly then the gospel in Isaiah. A divine deliverance by God. A divine rescue operation. Not a synergistic effort here. You know, that the people and God are somehow working together. Not God coming halfway and the people coming halfway. But rather, this is a trapped, enslaved, captive, imprisoned people who cannot escape or save themselves. They must be rescued and delivered by God single-handedly. Sounds a lot like two people sitting on the side of the Bronx Expressway with their gas tank underneath the truck. God alone is going to bring the Israelites a deliverance from their bondage in Babylon. That's the gospel in Isaiah and in the Old Testament. The message of a massive rescue operation by God on behalf of a people who are absolutely unable to rescue themselves. And that's the understanding now that we need to bring to Mark. That we need to bring to Mark's gospel account like the first century Jews who read it and knew their Isaiah and Old Testament history. So now as we approach Mark 1, let's try again, we read the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We see that Mark is saying, you know what gospel is. When God comes and rescues you, Well, I want to tell you about a gospel moment that has its foundations in the book of Isaiah, but that reaches its final fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus, the anointed one of God, who is himself more than just a man. 
Mark's telling us that the final fulfillment to the prophecy of Isaiah 40, where God did an amazing work in rescuing his people, but now it's about to be expanded because as you start to examine the life of Christ, we see that he is the single greatest moment in all of human history and all of gospel. God brings about a divine deliverance in the lives of all people, an even bigger rescue operation than ever before. Not just the Israelites, but now the rescue mission is spread out to the entire earth, to all peoples. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Right? I mean, that's Isaiah saying, Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. To quote Isaiah. Okay, so that's verse 1. Now we can move on. That's the framework for how we understand the cosmic nature of the entrance of Jesus Christ into history and the lens through which we grasp his accomplishments. So then when Mark quotes from the prophetic voice in verses 2 and 3, we can see that Jesus is not a new work in the plan of God, but rather he's a continuation and final installment of all the gospel actions of God. Verse 2 and 3 say this, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. When a dignitary would come to visit a foreign nation, their plan of arrival, their procession through the city would be carefully laid out as a means of the host city trying to impress. This is the language that's present in the quotation from Isaiah here. It's the arrival of someone really important. And the red carpet treatment, we can call it, is being put out for him. It's the language that Isaiah uses to describe the arrival of God to save his people from their captivity. And now what is also in view is that there's going to be another lone individual who will get the message out before the arrival of the Lord. And that person is John the Baptizer, or as we call him, John the Baptist. Just as in Isaiah's time, there was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy when Israel was returned from the land after their captivity. But now there's a greater fulfillment of the same prophecy in the arrival of the gospel now in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the historic gospel message of God being the divine deliverer, that's Old Testament gospel, is now ratcheted up to the maximum pledged expectation. That is not only that God would merely send a deliverance to meet his people in need, but that God himself would come in the flesh to be that deliverance for his people. Behold your God. The real problem in Isaiah's time, and for that matter in a great portion of the Old Testament, is that people externalized the worship of God. All action and no heart. Because the heart is held captive by the desire to self-save and to self-justify. To justify our actions and our thoughts and our, and our lives. Now, if we really understand in the Old Testament concept of gospel, and we should now, 
It's God coming to deliver his people who cannot possibly save and deliver themselves. And the greatest gospel moment of God is when he comes not to bring people out of physical bondage, like the second exodus that we read out of Babylon in the Old Testament, but rather to deliver people out of spiritual bondage, enslavement to the continual quest to justify our own lives which is what sin is, settling for less than God. It's us attempting to find the ever-elusive, fleeting satisfaction in and through our own accomplishments. That's missing the mark, ultimately, of perfection. And that's the definition of sin. And so God comes in the flesh to save me from myself and the destructive power of sin and its consequences. That's the final gospel frontier, the corruption of the heart that Jesus Christ comes to eradicate through his own perfect life and sacrificial death. And when we say, according to Mark, that, you know, that this is the gospel, we are acknowledging that it's something we can't accomplish on our own. We can't just use gospel flippantly then, because now when we say gospel, we have to know it means a divine deliverance. It's something that God does, not something that I do. Because that's its roots in the Old Testament. That's the nature of what gospel is long before Jesus came to earth. Jesus brings the gospel of God to deliver us and to save us, and we receive it not through personal merit or or work or effort. Gospel, after all, first and foremost, is a divine deliverance on our behalf. Gospel, by biblical understanding, is never a synergistic effort. God helps me, I help God, or, or I help myself because God helps me. Gospel is not a performance-based concept where I must try to keep God happy through personal performance in order to stay in His good graces. That doesn't fit Isaiah's model at all. And all the gospel writers use the Isaiah model to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I tell you, there's nothing more painful in, in the, you know, the greater church at large in this world than the corruption of the gospel in such a way where you believe that salvation is God and you working together somehow. When by definition, the gospel is a divine deliverance by God alone. But isn't that what makes it good news? God coming on my behalf? It's not such good news if people believe the basic message of the Bible is you need to try harder. There's nothing freeing about that. I just feel a greater burden because I can't live up to that. All four of the gospels quote this same Old Testament Isaiah passage as an explanation for the presence of John the Baptist and the springboard for understanding the presence and life and ministry of Jesus. You need volume one, Isaiah, in order to get any of the volume twos. And here that he brings the ultimate gospel moment, Jesus does, because he is, as God in the flesh, the living gospel this time, who pays the highest Christ, his own death, to bring about the divine deliverance that people need, the rescue that frees and that that liberates the soul. Jesus was quoted as saying, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. That's the message of Jesus in the gospel. 
So as we sat on the side of the road, we did call AAA. That was the one call. And they did come, and they got us off the highway safely. That's a whole other story. And they took us to a service station, who in turn then took us to a hotel that I wish I could sleep above the bed. But it was across the street from the New York Botanical Garden, where we spent the entirety of the next day waiting for a new gas tank to arrive to be installed. Now, don't get me wrong. That deliverance came at a price, a very heavy price. But let me tell you, the real gospel brought to us by Jesus involved the giving of his own life in order that we could be delivered for not living up to God's standards. And like the people in Isaiah's time, they received the gospel. They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. And it's the same for us now. We don't earn God's forgiveness or or enter into His good graces through our righteous attempts at living. Instead, we receive it by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. A little further in Mark chapter 1, when we hit verse 14, it says this. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is preaching the gospel of God. It doesn't say Jesus is preaching himself. Jesus is preaching the message of the gospel of God, a message that's been in existence for over a thousand years before he walked the earth. But here now, as he's preaching this, he calls people to repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus inaugurates a new era of gospel, an era of God's deliverance where we become part of God's kingdom and find freedom for our hearts, living under His protective reign in our lives. Not a greater burden, but a greater freedom finally for the heart. Jesus calls people to believe in the gospel, believe in the power of God's rescue operation personified in Him alone. Do you get it now a little bit? It's such a simple truth, but it's so foundational that if you ever depart from it for even a moment, you'll corrupt what the gospel really is. God alone, without assistance, without aid, without my help, comes and rescues me and forgives me and makes me a part of His eternal kingdom. And that's the hope for living. That gives me strength to journey on. The gospel, not lay miss. It gives me a real and eternal purpose for living without judgment, without fear for those who, as Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. We have to keep coming back to this because our hearts will try and take us back to performance-based living. If you're like me, you fight it every single week where you only feel good about yourself if you're living up. And you never feel like you're living up. And you'll always be looking to your next accomplishment as a way to finally justify your life. Instead of believing that Jesus justifies your life because He died for you in the Gospel. Leave with this. Isaiah lays the groundwork for our understanding of Jesus and what the gospel is. we got to do a better job at understanding Isaiah. 
And, and the other thing is this. The Gospel is a divine deliverance of God, by God, for us. And we receive it by faith. We don't earn it or even work to keep it. So let's respond to Jesus this morning with our new understanding of what the Gospel is and return to trusting Him to be our Savior and Deliverer. Pray with me, please. Almighty God, oh, how freeing the message of the Gospel is to our hearts and our souls. That You continue to renew us with the message that You've come in the flesh to deliver us from ourselves. And oh, that we receive this divine deliverance by faith in You alone, Father, is the message that resonates with our souls. Forgive us for our lives where we continue to turn to trying to impress You, Father. And to trying to think that that You respond to us the way we respond to You. And that You love us only because we try really hard. Forgive us for corrupting the Gospel in our own minds even when we know clearly the Gospel is something else that's brought to us in Christ Jesus. Revealed through Isaiah the prophet, but delivered to us in power and authority by Your presence on this earth and by Your presence in our lives. And so grant us faith this morning, Father, and repentance and a greater trust as we turn again to Christ to believe solely in the message of the Gospel for Your glory both now and in the ages of the ages. Amen.